How about one or two people question or comment about the practice we just did? Whole body awareness, the lateral. Yay. Okay, here we go. Okay, good. Um, I probably should have left that slide up. Sorry about that. Um, Any comment or question about the practice you just did? Or anything else? Is that a... Okay, then good. No. It was okay. You seemed pretty centered in it. It was pretty quiet in the room. Okay. Great. Wow, that was easy. Super. Well, I think we're going to now turn it over to Ricardo here. Here we go. (laughs) Okay. Um, I'm Rick's time reminder. I'm that little angel. <laughs> and over on the other shoulders, the devil's hand. <laughs> I have the floor. <laughs> you have a clicker. Oh, dear. Um, so what we're going to be doing now is really uh, the focused concentration practice that in my previous talk I discussed a little bit in terms of the jhana. Um, And so, although I said we were going to not, we kind of have hubris in certain terms of trying to send people into jhana states, I think to give you a flavor of what those processes are, we can try to take you through some of the, the the factors of allowing jhana states to arise. Um, with the, with the idea of coming to singleness, this is a different different way of approaching. We're kind of we bounce around with different kind of practices, basically aiming for people who have different attributes. Some people, you know, this goes back to the turtle and the and the and the rabbit and needing social interaction. Some people are better able to attend to attain um, a singleness in a sense of of oneness doing the lateral networks practice that we just did. Uh, other people, the, a, a more direct focused attention seems to fit their personality better. So this one is going to be more of a, a practice that's really designed to sort of just strike out for the goal and uh, essentially, if you pardon the, the exaggeration, take no prisoners on the way. Boom. Um, so, a roadmap from the Buddha. The Buddha described the jhanas again, and they'll be kind of going through this a little bit again. The Buddha described a progressive process in which the mind is steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. And through that whole uh, behavioral repertoire, you come to the process that leads to liberating insight. In steadiness, attention is stable. Quiet, there's tranquility, little verbal or emotional activity, letting go of all those things that arise that would uh, give you the emotional disturbances or the top 40 uh, verbal memories of the last 10 days that keep playing in your mind. Singleness, an integrative awareness, real minimal thought, just aware moment by moment by moment. 
with a deep and nearly effortless engagement with the target of attention. We're describing a process here. The target of attention will be something that you can choose. And the object of the meditation is to stay with that target of intention through the entire process. And concentrated are the jhanas, related, related non-ordinary states of consciousness. Great, great absorption. Sometimes some very powerful feelings can arise of rapture, or bliss, or happiness, contentment, and equanimity. And essentially, sort of that sequence. So I think what I will do is to have you close your eyes and take up your seat. This will be something of a longer meditation and I'll try really to keep my voice to as little as possible. And for the purposes of this meditation I would like you to Pick an object of attention. Breath is most common. Other states that, uh, that can be uh, looked at, you can use, uh, you can use a, a, a visualization of a guru or an enlightened being. You can... Use a sense of, of wishing to be in, in singleness and completely focused. You can look, look at just the process of paying attention to what is arising. Just as Rick has done earlier today, and what I'll do now is I'll use the breath. Please feel free to substitute your own object of attention when I say breath. Taking up the position of a human being, halfway between heaven and earth, with an absolute right to be sitting here now, bodied, tranquil, erect, relaxed. Bring the attention to the breath, wherever the breath's happening for you. In the nostril, back of the throat, chest, belly, or an entire embodied breath throughout your entire body. Apply your attention to the breath.
sustain your attention through the breath. With the breath into the next breath. No forcing. Nothing to do but stay with the breath and stay with the attention. Experiences and states will arise and your mind may chase them. When you find yourself somewhere else, wake up. Bring yourself back to the breath. grateful for the moment of awakening that allowed you to come back and breathe. And perhaps after a few breaths, you can begin to feel the stability of your practice. That the stability of attention on the breath becomes easier. It is easier to return when distracted.
It is easier to sustain when present. Each breath a new breath. And in this stability of breathing, allow yourself to be aware of the quiet. Quiet surrounding the breathing. Noises may arise and pass away. The quiet remains. A deep, peaceful silence. In that silence, much less verbal chatter than before. In that quietness, less sensory stimuli. The body begins to disappear from awareness. Awareness remains. No goal, no finish line, 
No measuring sticks. Just the breath. the quiet expand like a pond coming to stillness when the wind stops. No fuss, no forcing. Peaceful, serene. And in that quiet absorption with the breath, see if one, if you can find a sense of rapture. Deep physical sense of the rapture of being with the breath. The joy and the sweetness of being able to rest on the breath.
perhaps allow yourself with that joy and sweetness to develop even a greater interest and focus on the breath and on being with the breath. with the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Perhaps you can allow a sense of singleness, a unification of awareness to arise. All perceptions, all memories happening just in this moment and this one and this one and this one. Perception an experience arising and falling, awareness remains. as the singleness of awareness remains, perceptions and thoughts come and go.
to the extent that you can, allow a sense of deep equanimity to arise. deep sense of acceptance. This is. This is. This is. Abiding in equanimity and attention and singleness. Stay in right concentration. Awake and aware. Awake and aware. Awake and aware.
Questions? It was a little bit of a swing for the fences meditation. <clears throat> it's 
Some question back there. I'm really interested in um, that deep stillness that we experience and um, what are the uh, biochemical um, factors? Is that dopamine or what's happening there when you get really, really still? Uh, I'm not sure I can give you a complete biochemical answer or neurophysiologic answer to that. Um, my, my sense is that in that deep stillness you are when you are in focused attention and deep stillness, you are literally in that original slide we had way back in the morning with the anterior cingulate cortex, just gently monitoring what is going on. With the idea that one is, the experiences are arising in the lateral networks, but the story about those experiences is not being told. Um, I think the, the, the Buddhist parallel is the parable of the second dart. When you get shot with an arrow in, a, in, in battle, you don't want to know what the head of the arrow was made of, what the wood was made of, what the what brand of bird, the species of bird the fledglings were came, who was the guy that shot it, what was his family, and why was he pissed off at you? You want to get the arrow out, and that's the that's the sick that's the story that arises as soon as we get in get out of the quiet. In the quiet. The story doesn't arise. Um, There's not a single neurotransmitter that's involved in that, but there is an entire system of the organization of the central nervous system to essentially be in awareness without being caught, without being captivated. And I think the, the lack of capture leads to the quiet. What we have here is a dead ice cream cone. Hi. Oh, goodness. So, um, thank you. And you spoke about earlier um, our, the concept of time when you were speaking about um, vertigo. And so, during meditation, um, the measure of time is almost, it's either very prolonged or like, like a brief moment. Um, I'm wondering at what part of the brain... I'm guessing it's the, the midline that is measuring time, but I don't know enough. So how is that related to what's, what areas are 
um, working in the brain? Why, why do we experience time as um, almost non-existent sometimes when we're meditating? Okay. Um, there is some interesting work uh, it was done by a guy by the name of Wolf Singer at the uh, Free University of Berlin who did a study on EEG co- coherence. And what he looked at is the neurons are activating and deactivating at the same time or are they activating and deactivating in some random fashion. Coherence is when everything is moving together. Chaos is when it's not. And what he observed uh, as, he's re- as he's doing these coherence studies on people is that we appear to have somewhere between 50 and 200 milliseconds of coherence separated by chaos, followed by coherence, followed by chaos. And so this is, this is a cortical thing. And, and part of what's running that, there is a circadian clock in the brainstem and that, that regulates day, night. Some of it's related to melatonin and pineal gland. Some of it's related to physical experience. Uh, a number of different things come into our, our circadian rhythms. But how this works in, in the conscious mind, which is up here in the cortex for the most part, is this coherence, this coherence chaos. And so I think that is what we experience as this clock. And the clock can vary about by your, your awareness of um, or how excited or relaxed you are. For example, those of us who have been unfortunate enough to go through a car accident or something like that may remember that as the accident is happening, you are seeing all kinds of things in incredible detail, event after event after event after event after event, uh, at a speed which you normally don't think you could process information. And as you're relaxed, it seems that times goes by. You know, minutes disappear, and where was I? And so that, that's a little bit of what I think happens in meditation, is we start to play with that. And the analogous piece out of that, which is... is you know, again, something of a digression off your answer, but I think is kind of important. So I looked at this coherent stuff and I said, emptiness, form. Form is not different than emptiness. Emptiness is not different than form. Form arises from emptiness. Emptiness arises from form. Out of, out of chaos comes coherence. And there's a subroutine somewhere in the brain that links those, ep- those epochs of coherence into some stream of autobiographical data that we say is a single stream of my thought processes. My thought processes dating back to when I was three or four and can remember them. Whereas the actual truth is it's like a Charlie Chaplin movie. It's broken up into frames. And we have the illusion of continuity. And in meditation, you can begin to take that apart. There's one down front. Um, So 
I found it extremely helpful to um, hear that those moments of distraction, like when the gate opens and a thought arrives that there's like a little dopamine hit. Um, as a person who's overcome a couple of addictions, um, that was a really helpful thing to sort of connect. Because then in this sit in particular, I was like, oh, I'm kind of addicted to those little hits of distraction that come, like those shiny new thoughts. They bring these all these sensations, and there's so much more going on there than just kind of the spaciousness, right? And so what happened in this last sit was I had a, like the resolve I had to cultivate to sort of overcome addiction. I kind of brought that to hmm. um, keeping the gate closed hmm. um, and just really being with the breath. And I deepened in there kind of in a new way, like kind of a subtle shift, but kind of profoundly different in my experience. And what I noticed... Sorry, my heart is pounding. <laughs> um, what I noticed was um, that the longer I stayed with the gate closed, like up from the bottom, this like almost panic even started to mm. come up. Um, and the only thing I, I know about it at this moment um, is that it, it was like... Um, if I can't get that goodness or positivity from little dopamine hits from distractions, it was like, well, then where on earth is it going to come from? Um, hmm. and, then, and then it linked up with what you were saying about the jhanas of bliss and happiness. And I, I was, so then it just occurred, like, what if there was, like, a, a source of joy and happiness that didn't depend on, like, mind grasping on things? And I just kind of got the sense that something pretty in a fundamental to my identity would have to, like, crumble in order to realize that there's, like, some kind of a source. Do you see what I'm yes. saying? Okay. Yes. So it's just sort of like I've been, like, I get, um, like, I've done a pretty good job of, like, stopping the ways that I create anguish for myself. Um, but it sort of dawned on me that, like, the next thing is maybe somehow receiving that kind of way bigger happiness and bliss. Um, and somehow that's terrifying. <laughs> or I'm, I'm kind of coming into contact with a part of me that just doesn't believe that exists. Mm. Mm. You want to take a swing at that? Yeah, well... <laughs> Thank you very much. That's beautiful. Um, I hear several things just to offer it, for others too. One is, there are different natural temperaments that want naturally more or less stimulation, including stimulation from the inside. Most of the inputs into the brain originate inside the body, including in the, nerve, in the brain and nervous system itself. And there literally is, I call it a stimostat, like a thermostat, in the basal ganglia that wants a certain amount of stimulation. And if it doesn't get enough, it's, it's, it's not wellness for that particular person. And the individual stimostat setting varies from person to person. And it's really good to honor a person's natural setting. Because paradoxically, when that little sensor is getting enough stim, 
it calms down and doesn't need to search for STEM elsewhere. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why, paradoxically, Ritalin and other amphetamine derivatives help people of a certain disposition maybe become calmer because they're already stimulated from the inside as well as strengthening their prefrontal executive regulation. Anyway, so that's, that's one part is to honor one's own nature. Now the deeper matter you're getting at, right? It's really far, you know. Part of what I hear is a panic at loss of control as a familiar method, being able to self-generate, you know, stimulation mm-hmm. of various kinds, and to, as that vehicle of well-being falls away, what will replace it? Can I trust anything? You know, will I go yep. in being? That's the alternative source, right? Uh, yeah, just when you said that, it kind of it's, it feels kind of like a process of restoring some kind of faith in, like, the... Yeah. Yes. And, and, and relatedness, and, you know, just psychologize slightly, the, in Eric Erickson's stages, the first stage is basic trust. And part of that trust is the trust of provision and a trust that if we fall back, we'll be caught. And even a trust that there will be enough aliveness and sparkle and effervescence, especially for our nature. And if in our history that trust wasn't justified, we couldn't develop that more that elemental basic trust, then we feel um, we can't trust so fully or there's a limitation. So then the exploration becomes exactly as you said. The gradual disengagement from a familiar vehicle that accomplishes a good purpose of wellness and enoughness and transition to a different vehicle, a different raft, to use the Buddhist metaphor, that's more uh, supple and nuanced and flexible and even profound. And we gradually disengage from an old strategy and we establish ourselves with increasing confidence in a new way of accomplishing the purpose all along of wellness and well-being. And then you look for different places for that. Where, where, what is the nature of that additional raft? And one of the places to look, and we'll go into this pretty soon experientially, is the lusciousness of, stimul- of well-being itself. And uh, if, if we abide more as mind itself, there's so much going on. It's so stimulating. I mean, the brain basically is filtering out 99% of the incoming bombardment of stimuli. So there's plenty to, to be fed by. So we can kind of open into it. And, and so then well-being itself becomes uh, un- enough and stimulating. So shifting attention to that, not yet to the divine, but that alone. Well-being is a <laughs> wonderful fadness. And then another thing to add here is a really big matter, but it can be kind of said in a small way. What's the transition from craving to not craving? That's the fundamental fulcrum in Buddhist practice and teaching. That deep, experientially driven inquiry aided by understanding, but it's experiential. What's the, tra- 
What's the transition from a mind of craving to not craving, or more or less craving, moment by moment by moment? And that is where, um, from the second to the third noble truth, that's the tr- that's the fulcrum in Buddhist practice. Mm-hmm. And so, what causes if suffering is caused by craving in the Buddhist frame? What causes craving? Craving, in an embodied sense, is a drive state based on an underlying sense or presumption in one's core of something missing or something wonky, deficit or disturbance. And on the basis of that deficit or disturbance, with reference to basic needs, three basic needs, safety, satisfaction, connection, broadly defined, some important needs are outside that frame, but that's a classic framework. Avoiding pain for safety, approaching reward for satisfaction, attaching to others for connection. Avoiding, approaching, attaching. Okay, so when we experience that there's something um, insufficient or out of balance in terms of any one of those needs, even if objectively our needs are being met, but if we feel in our core like something's off, naturally we go into a more or less intense state of craving including subtle states, including craving for what might be inside us to get more of it. So, with repetition, given neurons that fire together, wire together, as we repeatedly have experiences of basic needs met, so there's a sufficiency, it doesn't need to be a million dollar moment, but we feel basically safe, basically satisfied, basically connected, you know, uh, rested there, as we, which is in a sense, an operationalization of equanimity, one of the great inquiries in Buddhist practice. So as we have that experience, those experiences again and again, safe enough, full enough, loved enough, again and again and again and again and again, we hardwire that into our own nervous system so that more and more we are able to meet the next moment at the front edge of now from a place of already having stabilized peace, contentment, and love, safety, satisfaction, connection, peace, contentment, and love, as the place from which, I call it the green zone brain, the place from which we meet the next moment so we can deal with challenges, as well as opportunities and issues in relationships from a place that's not coming from a craving place. And so the repeated internalization of that, again and again and again and again and again, you build it up inside yourself more and more. You don't need to look outside or inside. You're already stable there, right? And then the last, if it's meaningful to a person, um, if you have, like you were getting at, an access to a sense of of Buddha nature, that's always already the case. It might be obscured, but it's always already the case, and as there's a growing sense of that, or whatever that might be, true self, or the unconditioned, uh, the infinite, uh, um, you know, as we have more and more of a sense of that, who needs anything else? You know, because then you, you, it's there wherever you go. And my own reverse engineering to finish of people who are truly enlightened, you know, as well as people who are becoming more and more permeable, is that they're meet, it's a little bit like this. They're meeting the front as time, let's say, moves this way or we move through, they move through time. They meet the front edge of conditioned actuality 
with the ba- their backside resting in unconditioned infinite possibility. Mm. Instant by instant by instant. And they have, and they demonstrate, and, and they draw others into their own lived experience of just infinite possibility right at the edge of conditioned actuality continuously. And I think a lot of practice is about being able to hang out more there, more instance under greater challenges to the point of being able to hang out there all the time, no matter what. There's a Tibetan saying, great, uh, I think it's one of the great early teachers, Marpa Milarepa, he said, in the beginning nothing stayed. Okay? Or, sorry, in the beginning nothing came. He couldn't stabilize any kind of wholesome state of mind. In the beginning, nothing came. In the middle, nothing stayed. In the end, nothing left. Fully cooked. Thank you. How about one more person, and then maybe we'll finish with a practice and wrap it up for the day. Is that okay? Thank you very much, by the way. That was... Thank you. Um, I, I've also done a lot of my own work around addictions. And in this last sit, I found myself more able to concentrate than I think has ever been true. And I noticed that when a thought came in, it was about the future. It was always about the future. and because there were not a whole lot of them, I also noticed this sudden realization that there was a craving and that any thought of the future seems to have craving as part of it. And that was a really helpful realization, so I just wondered if you could comment on that. I I think it's a beautiful statement. I think in some ways it stands on its own. Um... Because to be in a, to, to have a future thought means that I'm going to move into it, which involves the decision to move where the thought is. I want to be there, or to no, I don't want to be there. I want to be there. So that's clinging or aversion, craving or aversion, right right in that moment as some thought comes in about the future. The the other, the other kind of fun piece in this is that this whole concept of moving from where I am into something else goes down to the cellular level. There is in the cells this whole concept of homeostasis. You are trying to maintain the sodium ions at a certain concentration, the potassium ions at a certain concentration, the calcium ions at a certain concentration. As an organism, you're trying to maintain your temperature at a, at a certain level. You're trying to do things to keep in balance. Basically, you know, even down to the cells in our body, we're trying to stand on the tip of the needle and maintain. Um, and so anything... You know that, and Rick was talking this just a minute ago. Anything where it's a felt lack um, in any of the three levels of the, of the brain—the reptilian, the, you know, the paleomammalian, or the neomammalian—where you're talking about, you know, safety versus sufficiency versus 
uh, connection. All of those, when it's a felt sense that you have a lack in that, involve the, the sense of moving into, wanting to get to somewhere, or wanting to get away from. So right there, you're not where you are. As soon as that, as soon as that arises, you're not where you are, you're in the future. And there is the, in, right in that point, is the, is the source of dukkha, is the source of suffering. And so then you can say, ah, I'll put that off. I'll come to that thought later. If it's important, it will arise again. That's at least a technique that, that I use in those, kind of, in those kind of circumstances when I get wrapped up in if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, then that. It's pretty much a, I don't have to do that right now. I can put it to the side. That's great. Well, thank you very much. And thank you. how about we do a, a final practice? Um, and I'm going to focus here on. All right. I put great. it back up there. Joy. Here we go. So. Good. So, in the five factors of deep meditative absorption, which people can cultivate in their regular practice. Um, one of the factors, the Sanskrit, I think Pali word, Pali, the language of early Buddhism, is sukha. And that's the word that's often translated as joy. Sukha is the root of the word for sucrose or sugar. It's sweet. It's a sweetness to it. So, and one of the um, things that I was taught from an important teacher in my own background, Christina Feldman, who's in England, Guy House, um, is that the joy factor, the sukha factor, can be experienced as on a spectrum of happiness, contentment, and tranquility. That's useful for me, at least, to recognize those distinctions, and in a moment we'll explore them. And also, Christina points out, consistent with her traditional teachers, that it's fine, it's all right, if it's useful to shift your, to change your object of attention. Maybe we start out with concentration on the breath to steady the mind, and in the process of that, there can be an opening to, let's say, joy or bliss, the rapture factor, uh, or we might deliberately evoke it, and then joy or let's say happiness, contentment, and tranquility, becomes the new object of attention in which we're becoming absorbed and through experience-dependent neuroplasticity, da-da, we are absorbing into ourselves as we marinate in it. Right? So that's the basic idea. And it's a really sweet factor, the joy factor. It's also very motivating, and as I said earlier with the dopamine gate, it tends to steady the mind. So I thought we could practice with that a bit. And then it'll be about 15 minutes. We'll finish with the three bells, and that'll formally end um, this time of practice with each other. Okay? So we'll finish on happiness. And again, here's the key we don't chase it, we maybe encourage it, we open to it, we evoke it, we don't try to cling to it. And, and also, with a kindness and wisdom for ourselves, we help it land. We help it be received into ourselves. Okay? So let's try it. So coming into being present here and now in the body.
Knowing that there can be physical pain, there can be a heavy heart, there can be outrage at injustice. And with those things, alongside those things, there can also be gratitude, sense of beauty, wholesome pleasure, like the taste of something sweet, the comfort of a warm sweater in a cold room. It can also be the felt sense of people in one's life today or people in the past feeling loved or loving. These other things can also be true. So out of kindness for oneself and as a factor of steadiness of mind, we're going to focus on some emotionally positive experiences. So, if you like, tuning into a happiness that is already present or perhaps amidst other things in your mind or delib- and or deliberately calling to mind things that help you feel grateful or glad, perhaps delighted. or otherwise happy. And along the way, as Thich Nhat Hanh suggests, maybe encouraging a little half-smile. <clears throat> Giving yourself the gift of some happiness and allowing yourself to receive the gift of some happiness. One beautiful form of happiness is happiness for the happiness of others, the good fortune of others. Maybe there's a child in, or person or adult in your life that you can be glad for. Um, you can be glad that a person has come through something hard. Those are forms of happiness. And as you can, seeing if you can become absorbed in happiness as an object of attention. So that happiness increasingly pervades your mind. And there's a sense of receiving it into yourself. 
happiness occupying you in some wholesome sense. There might be warm-heartedness mixed in with happiness or a kind of happiness, like a loving happiness. Then, as you like, and it may already be happening for you, allowing the intensity, perhaps, of happiness to settle into something more subtle, contentment. A sense of well-being with no wish for the moment to be other than what it is. Contentment. explore different aspects of that experience. Enoughness already. You can be mindful of subtle movements of craving, the wishing or manipulating of the mind to be a little more or different or jazzed up or something than it is. And allowing craving, even subtleties, of reaching for something better to fall away as you are increasingly filled with contentment.
What's it feel like in your body, in your face? To the extent you can, to rest in well-being with no reaching in the mind for more. Being mindful of seeking, falling away, any kind of search, falling away, no need for it, already being well. As always, allowing whatever else is in the mind to be there or to arise and pass away. Held as much as possible in a larger context or base of contentment. Or as we move now in the final step, and you may have done it, moving into a growing tranquility. Not a numbness or a blankness. Oh, a beautiful peacefulness.
And then as we start to finish up, if you like, you can join me in a practice my teacher Christina Feldman taught me in which we go back up the path we followed. So if you like, moving from tranquility back to contentment. More active, emotionally rich sense of well-being. And then finishing as you like, one step more up back to happiness. Gratitude, gladness, things that bring a smile. A fullness of love maybe a joyfulness perhaps. You can start to open your eyes and continue in this meditation with eyes open. Reflecting on a comment from another key teacher I've had, um, Gil Fronstel, talked about as we finish a meditation, we should finish it like a runner in a race who keeps going through the finish line, bringing it into the rest of our life rather than kind of changing the channel, which is a nice way to think of this here. And as we finish up, I'd like to leave you with a quote from the Buddha in the slides. First, expressing my gratitude to you and to all the volunteers and the Spirit Rock staff and my friend and co-teacher here. Thank you. And as the Buddha points out here, or I might call it the law of little things, lots of little bad things take us to a bad place. It's usually lots of little good things that take us to a better one. And that's very hopeful. I believe it is said in Tibet that if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. (laughs) I ask myself, what's the most important minute of our life? I think it's the next one, continuously. You know, what will we do with the most important minute of our life? 
throughout all the hours and days and years? Will we dwell on what's problematic, what's suffering, what causes harm? Or will we harvest the good and encourage the good and honor the good and respect the good that is authentically available in the next minute? Minute after minute after minute, helping it leave durable, beneficial traces in our own nervous system along the way. Moving through life like a sticky net as the river of time flows through, letting the, the crud you know, keep on going as it does, while without craving, helping the good to stick to our ribs, in part because that's how we gradually undo the underlying biological cra- causes of craving as deficit and disturbance. Or as the Buddha puts it, think not lightly of good, saying it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. May you and I and all beings fill ourselves with good for our own sakes and that of everyone else. Thank you very much. It's a wrap. Thanks for letting me finish that way.